Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. Today is Sunday, the 6th of the 9th. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. Michael, there's no time to ask you how you are this week. There's too much news. Far too much. Excellent. Didn't even try and get in there. I like the cut of your jib. Let's go right into this. (laughs) During the week, we were complaining about the government doubling down on an incredibly stupid policy, the the nine euro meals. I wrote an entire article on how this meant the government had no plans, no strategies, no idea what they were doing, and this was overwhelmingly an incredibly moronic thing. Well, good news, they've announced in two weeks, or well, sorry, they haven't announced, but it looks like they're going to allow in two or three weeks, all of the pubs to open, and that regulation will be totally meaningless. Well, not 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 even two or three weeks, Gary. The date that was previously given for the pubs to reopen was the September the thirteenth, which is a, 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 I believe that's a week. Fantastic. The government thought, do you know what we really need to do? We we need to announce a policy so monumentally stupid <laughs> that people will stop and begin tweeting us their meals, asking if that's okay, en masse. And then what we'll do is we'll wait a couple of days and we'll just go, ah, but it won't matter in a week. Still, it was interesting. To, I was, I have to say I was glued to my Twitter feed, seeing what people were having for their, their daily intake. I, noticed, I don't know if it's the people that I follow or people who follow me on Twitter. Everybody was having coffee for breakfast. Nobody was having tea. A lot of banana eaters out there, a lot of yoghurt. Very middle class, I suppose. But it's just fantastic. They really are giving the impression of people who are governing on the basis of something they've written on the back of a fag packet. And then I loved when Michal came out and said, well, no, there'd be no no changes to the pub. I mean, they'll just have to keep the receipts. And then anyone who had read the legislation went, well, we don't usually have names and phone numbers on receipts, Michal. Mm -hmm. That sounds like a bit of a change. And then just when everyone is gearing up to come on down... And have fun jumping on the government. The government just goes, oh, it's not a policy anymore. Or maybe it is. Maybe they'll keep doing it for pub restaurants and not for what they call wet pubs. which <laughs> A system which makes absolutely no sense but is perfectly in line with how everything is going so far. I, lo- I love that the, when Michal was saying that whatever happens with the pubs opening up, the pub, that the, 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 the old way of the pub, the pub, that Pub culture has got to have to change. None of this nonsense. People have to be responsible. So we don't want people going around engaging in pub crawls. No. A number of things about first of all, frankly, the pub crawl, okay, at Christmas you'll have a lot of people in in, in particularly Dublin but or the country who will do the, the thirteen pubs if they have a town with thirteen pubs in it. But you know, this they do the, the Christmas crawl. Other than that, I'm sorry, but the, the the famous pub crawl really is an art it's an artifact of the imagination. It's what kids do when they go to Ibiza or Ayanapa, but pub crawling in Ireland today, very, very little. But as you pointed out to me, Gary, these are the same people who actually had built it into the way you use the pub, that you had to go in, you had to get your substantial meal, your plate of hummus for nine euro, but then you're only allowed to stay for an hour and a half. So at that point, if you wanted to be out for the night, then you had to then you had to go to another pub if you wanted to go. Then get another plate of hummus. Or if you hit at half past ten, because all the kitchens in whatever place you were in closed at nine o'clock, so you're stuck now, then you're faced with the reality that half past ten, people are out for the night. Well, they're going to get a bag of, a bag of carry-out from somewhere or they'll have previously equipped themselves with one and back to the house party. And we know, Gary, don't we, 
that the house party is, of course, the satanic seat of all evil when it comes to COVID. But <laughs> the thing that I thought, I, 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 you could hear Martin when, I, maybe I'm projecting here, but listening to this and reading his comments about, you know, the, we have to be responsible and we have to change our behaviours, that there's part of him which would just love to think of some regulations. Can we not think of some way we can stop them going on pub crawls? Like, can we give them a ticket and you're only allowed to use one ticket or or maybe maybe they get a stamp in a pub and if they go into another pub, they're checked for a stamp. But because everything so now has, up to now has worked so horribly badly, they haven't even attempted yet to bring in some regulation that will actually modify people, force people to modify their behaviour. But I'm not saying that they won't, because I really have that strong feeling they would love to do something, but they're terrified now of doing so, because everything else has just been exposed, as I said before, as a load of bollocksology. Well, I think it's it's important to try and figure out what this government's, what they actually care about, like what is their guiding star. And it seems to be, how unpopular can we become as quickly as possible? Well... I don't... I mean, look at look at their policies, Michael. It's if someone sat down and went, how can we piss people off for the smallest conceivable gain? And that man was good at his job. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's... There is a sense that Michal is saying, 9% in the polls, you think I can't go lower? You just watch me. Rolls up his sleeves. Our target is 5%. And so... That, let's put that to one side, Mike, because we talked about this. Yes. Now, I think the fact that it's it's effectively now meaningless is um, hilarious. And they announced it the same day I wrote a long article basically saying that this showed they had no plans, no strategies, no nothing, that these people were basically idiots. Although it did include one line which I was very proud of, which referred to how this only happened because someone in Fine Gael HQ had read the index of a book on nudge theory. <laughs> which I think pretty much sums up Finnegale HQ, but you know nudge, nudge, that yeah. might just me. I hate nudge theory. I hate it. I I hate the people who enjoy it, and I hate the lack of evidence about it. It's just it's it's voodoo. And at very best, if it works, it'll destroy the public's trust in you because they'll eventually feel out that you're you're manipulating them. Just for the sake of clarity, nudge theory is this notion that through small pieces of regulation or legislation affecting price or accessibility, that you the government can change behaviours and can modify behaviours in a positive way. So rather than very large-scale pieces of, of legislation, uh, heavy-handed intervention or large-scale education, you just these lit little pieces uh, are will just nudge people along and will get them in the right direction. So instead of, instead of the government coming out and saying that you have to do this, because then people may not do that, instead they simply engineer the environment you're in to basically push you towards it without you having to think about it. And the danger, of course, then, is that if the government starts doing that, one, it probably won't work because behaviour is incredibly complicated and most of the people who try and apply nudge theory are not themselves terribly complicated. Yeah, one of the problems with all of these things is they tend to look at the citizen, or shall we say, or the consumer, as these completely static, passive actors who, when presented with a change in circumstance, will just simply behave as they believe that in it, 
they they they're this completely predictable behavior as if if you have if you have two gates open and you're driving cattle and they would normally go to the left gate but if you close the left gate then the cattle will simply go into the right one well on for people not quite that so like classic example of that is with fiddling around with the price of alcohol the idea if you put up the price of alcohol well people will drink less of course consumers actually what they do is they they recognize that maybe that particular form of alcohol has become more expensive so i'll find another form of alcohol or if i don't take alcohol well then i'll find some other stimulant or depressant which will give me more bang for my book so you end up driving people in a direction that you never wanted them to go or if you make or you keep nudging you end up like they have in sweden where people end up making gin in their bathtub and which turns out isn't actually the best health outcome that you you want uh, or you have you you send them over to Germany or to Holland where they go on these massive binge drinking where proper binge is not like a three pint binge which is the official definition of a binge which is why even though we have we we come in the sector above Sweden for alcohol consumption we come that Sweden actually comes above us for uh, health negative health outcomes associated with alcohol and hospital admissions associated with alcohol. But the thing, the thing I love about nudge theories, when you talk to people who are into this sort of thing, you can sort of, well, okay, let's say it works, and that's that's a big let, but let's let's allow you that. Let's say you you start applying it in government. What do you do when the public finds out about it? When the public finds out that you have been changing their choices, manipulating them effectively without informing them of them? You've basically been thinking that they are they're like a bunch of lab rats in a maze and if, if you can change the direction with using a nut or an electrical charge to drive them one way rather than the other that they may they may not appreciate that no i, I think they may move michael towards a sort of i suppose it's time to beat you with sticks and lengths of metal now the thing is we don't have to talk theory you're talking about a government that's trying to be unpopular, right? Oh yeah. Let's let's look at nudge theory in action and a set of proposals which if the if Joe Public out there manages to find out about them, I can't believe is going to go down gangbusters. So I, I assume, Michael, you are talking about a waste action plan for a circular economy, which is amusing because it's been designed by a government that could be base summarised as a circular firing squad. It's just brilliant. I mean, it's proposal one after another, which is just for uh, first. The first thing with let's put the headline on it. This is obviously principally designed by the Greens, but signed off. Fine Gael signed off, and Fine Fall have signed off on it. But this is obviously a, a, a green wet dream. So let and now we all know. Let's. Let, let's not quibble about accuracy or data, but let's just state it. No poor people vote for the Greens. And if, and if any did, they'll stop very soon. No, I, I, I think, and I think the middle class voters of the Green will recognise these as necessary sacrifices for the greater good, primarily because they're sacrifices that won't be paid for by their voters. So, okay, let's start... Number one, a ban. I love it when they start to decide they're going to go into supermarkets and start banning things. It's like they used. We used to have a a minimum a price order, which meant that there was a minimum price on things like uh, well, actually a max. Sorry, there was a maximum price on things like bread and 
and I mean, if, although since then we've had a proposal that there should be a minimum price they want very often that they want to go after the, the, the building multiples because they do below cost selling and they have to ban that because obviously it's a better thing if poor people have to pay more for their food and this is a good example of that they want to ban buy one get one free food deals now michael that sounds bad but they do also recognize and i think this is important this is the first line of their section on food in the report which i will link below should you want to build up the sort of rage that might be useful in some sort of gym session or fight to the death uh, this is the first line of their section on food. Food is fundamental to our existence. Wow. Now, that's the sort of out-of-the-box thinking and recognition that got the Green Party where they are today. I'd like to see some data on that before I buy into that. That sounds like a... Yeah, what's the saying? that In parts, it is both new and good, but the parts that are new aren't good, and the parts that are good aren't new. <laughs> There's a little bit of that, but I do like that they, they do recognise that people need food to live. That's the sort of analysis that needs to be in a fucking government policy. <laughs> so one of their concerns is that the sale of multi-packs encourages overbuying. Well, I can understand that. Obviously, if you're, if you're a low-income person, you're, you're going into these places and you're just buying food all over the place that you don't need and you don't care about. And you're wasting, you're throwing out half your food because, you know... What the hell? You don't really care about the money. I mean, do the poor even know who to how to eat? Maybe perhaps they just smear it over themselves, creating massive amounts of food waste. We know that they don't have to eat. Jamie Oliver has been telling us this for a very long time, that they, they need to be brought in and re-educated. Well, unfortunately, Michael, these days, Jamie Oliver is a bit too busy going bankrupt to do that. And now, to be fair, Jamie has managed to go bankrupt many, many times without him ever having to inter interfering with his other business. You think that when someone stands up and tells you what to eat, and you go, haven't you gone bankrupt trying to sell people food multiple times? Might lead people to go, maybe this man just doesn't know what people actually want to eat. You know, if they were saying what we're going to do is we're going to stop people doing, say, buy one pack of wild smoked salmon get one free well then i you know i'd be i'd say that is probably a mostly middle class problem or the sale of i don't know organic quails eggs perhaps but i think that there are in fact i know there are plenty of people who are on who on tight budgets and the first place they go in the supermarket are those chill cabinets where whatever is reduced is placed and if there are really good bargains and sometimes there are they go they're bought and they're bought in multiples if they can and they go into the freezer i know people that will wait until the last minute say from when bread goes on offer and they it's reduced because it's obviously not the next day you you can't sell previous day's bread in supermarkets and they go and they'll buy them and they again go into go into the freezer you have to give people some kind of credit that if there is food waste going on, and I don't doubt that there is, but the poorest people in this country are not the people who are principally responsible for it, but this will punish them. It won't punish anybody else, but it will punish poor people. But Gary, it's not just food. No, but it is important to point out that getting rid of two-for-one deals will push up the per-unit price for food in relation to the items that will be put on deals. People most likely take advantage of those deals are those who don't have a lot of disposable income and want to get a basic food item. Yes. By banning them, the Green Party 
and Fine Gael and Fine Fall, because they've all fucking signed off on this, are saying they want to make food more expensive for the poor. Now, Michael, I have been a right-winger pretty much all my life. I have been called heartless, a bastard, an absolute cunt, oftentimes by people who liked me. Many, many things. But in relation to the heartless thing, I don't think I've ever argued that what this country really needed, Michael, what we really needed, was to fuck the poor good and proper. Well, now, Gary, this is not new. Let's face it, we... I don't want to perennially sit on the same hobby horse that, but minimum alcohol pricing, which we referred to, I referred to this momentarily before, and I've talked about many times here, is an attack on the poor. It it's nothing and nothing but an attack on the poor. If you drink premium brands in in spirits, you are unaffected by it. If you drink fine wines, you're unaffected by it. If you drink principally in pubs or restaurants, you are unaffected by it. You're only affecting people who drink low cost. And we also, I feel, I again have to point out that poor people don't drink that much. That drink. The consumption of alcohol is positively correlated with income. In other words, the more money you have, the more likely you are to drink more. The thing here is what they're going to do is they're going to do what they did with the carbon tax, where they'll get pushed back and they go, OK, we'll, we'll, we'll ameliorate the negative impacts of it somehow. But here's, here's the problem, like carbon tax. I'm going to run through this because it's always good to kick carbon tax a little bit when you oh. have the time. Carbon tax is a tax designed to change your behaviour. The increased costs of goods and services that produce high levels of carbon will push you to go to more efficient goods. So the aim of carbon tax is for as large amount of people as possible to not pay carbon tax or to pay the minimum amount of carbon tax because they have willfully changed their decisions. Yes. Sounds a lot like nudge theory, but... Let's go into that right now. What the government did, the last government, and what this government will undoubtedly do, is then say, because people made the the very correct point of, but if you like live in a rural area or you're poor and you can't afford the more expensive and more efficient alternatives, doesn't that just mean that all of your costs go up? Because you can't afford an electric car or you can't afford the homegrown organic vegetable. And rather than say yes, because that's, the aim of it, what they said was, well, no, we'll put in place a series of you know, cash back and tax rebates and things like that uh, so that the poor won't be hit. The problem there is that doing so directly undermines how carbon taxes work, because if it doesn't cost you any more money, you don't change your behavior, which means the rate of carbon tax has to go up, which will hit the poor hardest, which means the subsidies have to go up more and it will endlessly cycle until we're all bankrupt and dead. And also, by the way, those methods, those things that are used to uh, so allegedly alleviate the problem for the poor don't actually work. No, there's there's the wonderful thing of we'll give you a tax rebate next year because you know my, that's what the that's what the poor really need, Michael, to wait a year and to get a uh, a tax rebate on the tax that they don't really pay. Yeah, but what if you say uh, there is a, re- a reference to a particular program that the government are using introducing COVID. Uh, which is going to be great for for people who will get their tax rebates, but doesn't include the 900,000 people that don't pay income tax. For them, they get nothing back. And again, if, if you're if you're relying on a, some kind of a tax credit or a tax rebate and you don't pay income tax, it's very hard to see how that's going to, uh, going to work for you as well. But also, it, it completely ignores the fact that one of the problems of poverty are, are people who income. If they're, what they can't, they can't afford simply the structural changes that are required to be able to move over 
to these things. And we lose, we see this with cars through a mixture of changes in the tax regime, and the, now we're going to with the, the desire to phase out diesel cars, and the fact that and and, and the NCT that increasingly we're, we're we're facing into a situation where poor people will not be, be you because you won't be able to buy. Uh, Cheap second-hand cars that because they will simply not be they they will not be compliant. You're going to you're you're going to go to a point where people under a certain income will simply not be able to afford a car, and that's grand. Well, I don't know if it's grand anywhere, but if you're living in Dublin and you've got a, you're you're somewhere near a bus line or a Lewis line or a Dart, you can survive. But there are large swathes of this very dispersed uh, population that we have in this country. For whom that is simply impossible, and they will have to find some way. And that, if of of getting around, them, they they don't. Again, frankly, they don't care. You're right, Michael. It's 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 not just it's not just food, because while removing food from the poor is a very effective way of combating climate change, because there's just too many of them. What about? I mean, they still have clothing, Michael, and they may eat each other, and that may keep them going. Well, you see, yeah, that's a, that's a, mo- a, a modest proposal there, yeah. What we need is to ensure that even if that happens, in the worst case scenario, a severe winter will finish them all off. And that's where we get to the next part of the Waste Action Plan for a Circular Economy. Examining the potential role of economic instruments, e.g. levies, on fast fashion, which could also support higher value indigenous producers by reducing the cost differential, which is a wonderful way of saying, we'll fuck the purr, while also putting money towards the sort of people who might vote for us. Uh, as it says simply here, levies on cheap clothes. Yes, because, Michael, it's not enough that purr people be hungry. They must also be cold, and preferably wet. I love the language here. Under the plan, levies will be implemented in fast fashion, targeting cheap clothes sold by large retail chains. The Assistant Secretary, Mr. Ryan's department, said the average EU citizen was buying 57 new garments every year, which has consequences for waste generation and resources. I, I read I read the quote from that, that, that. That's the Secretary, isn't it? Yeah, Philip Nugent. Quote, we are obviously consuming much more than we need to, and we are buying much more than we need to, he said. Well, God bless Philip Nugent that he knows such things that we are consuming. Now, I I am curious to know, 57 new garments. Gary, would you say a sock is a garment or a pair of socks would be a garment? I'm confused on that. My God, Michael, it could be. In which case, you get, you know, a three pack of socks, you're six garments in. Six garments in, so you get six pair of socks, and you get six. You get a three pack of jocks. So, you, so how many? You're already. I mean, you're 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 well into it. We work on the basis that we have what two and a half seasons a year in Ireland. You've got a bit of summer, a lot of winter, and then something sort of in between. It's spring and autumn. So you need kind of, you need something in there. Um, but we are EU citizens now. I would be curious to know, I would be curious to know what uh, that number of these 57 new garments of year, how that reflects, if you if you uh, adjust it for income, uh, because it's, now this is a, 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 a sure, it's, a, it's an anecdote, but, and it seems to me, I, I, I can't quite understand it myself, but I was talking to a, a, a social worker recently who was a friend of mine who had a conversation with uh a young lady who said, 
who, who's uh, the father of whose child, uh, the fa- uh, this, this boy was the father of her child anyway, and he had expected to, to meet the father on this occasion. Well, he couldn't come. Why? Because he was washing his clothes. And he said, uh, well, wh- why, why, why can't he just wear other clothes? <laughs> and which, well, he doesn't have other clothes. Now, I'm suggesting that this is not a man who's buying 57 new garments every year. Unless he's buying a hell of a lot of socks. There are people out there, Gary, who do. Also, it's just the arrogance of this. I mean, I, I mean, maybe Mr. Mugent is buying church shoes. He buys two pairs of shoes every year and they're good churches. So they you get them healed and sold and they last him a lifetime. So he doesn't need to see. He goes to, he goes to Louis Copeland or he goes to Brown Thomas's every five or six years and buys himself a nice, well-cut, well-made uh, cashmere wool blend overcoat. Because, you know, you, if you buy a decent coat, Gary, it should last you five years or more. This, this is this is I mean, this has been the problem for successive Irish governments. The idea that, well, if we if we raise the minimum standard, everyone will be better off. And then they stand there astounded that it turns out, Michael, some people can't afford the better things. Is and it get amazing? the lesser things because they'd like to survive on what they can actually pay for. Like the, the, the absolute puzzlement that there was on their on, on their collective faces when having decided that bedsits were just too squalid and simply horrid and you couldn't have people living in them and you couldn't raise the family in a bedsit. It's outrageous. So let's ban those and let's ban flats that are of a certain side. Oh my God, look at that. We now have a, short, a shortage of housing. Let's look at the, the last couple of governments, Michael. You can't have a bedsit. So if you can only afford a bed to get in the fucking street. The homeless services are shit, so enjoy that. <laughs> now, did you did you smoke? Well, that's going up every year because you can't enjoy things, and frankly, you're there to die of exposure, so get on that one. Although, in fairness, if we could encourage them to smoke a bit more, they would die up more quickly. And it would be more efficient for the health service, but that's the sort of outside-the-box thinking that won't happen in Ireland until we start thinking inside-the-box first. Then let's say you are uh, you you like drinking when minimal alcohol pricing means that you're poor you don't get to enjoy things and then eventually I mean if you had a car but unless you can afford an electric car soon you'll get hit on that as well and now they finally close the wonderful circle because with carbon tax everything you consume will be more expensive and if you're poor you can go fuck yourself again and then we get to the final point of maybe you just don't need food. And clothing, which, frankly, Michael, as someone on the right wing, I think is part of the reason we've let the culture go so far to the left. Because when the left is saying that, well, we don't care if the poor die in a gutter somewhere, uh, as long as it's out of the sight of our wonderfully middle class voters. I don't don't know how I mean, I can't become that conservative. I, I grew up in a working class area. I don't dislike the working class. Dig it. You know. You think they've done enough, but no, they always have the like, capacity to give them one last good kick. So what we're going to do is we're going to make sure drink is more expensive. So you, you know, we're going to make sure if you want to drink, that's going to be that's going to be dear. We've made fags so expensive that actually we've now gone, we've now produced the, the opposite effect that I think was it last year for the first time and I don't know how many years there was actually an uptick in the consumption of a tobacco in the country because having, we, we went over the tipping point with duty on, on tobacco products so that the number of, that we have 
created this very extensive black market in tobacco products so people are actually buying them uh, from criminals and, just, and at obviously much much cheaper uh, prices so that it's, it's actually the price disincentive has stopped working for large numbers of people because they're not buying them at half the price that they would pay in the shop so well done them on that one so We've gone for the fags, we've gone for the booze. We're going to make your food more expensive now because let's face it, ever since the likes of Lidl and Aldi come in, you've you've poor people eating kiwi fruits and mangoes and that kind of thing. That which is it's obviously unnatural, Michael. It's unnatural, it really is. But you know what? Just Actually, in case, just in case you have a quid left in your pocket. Now, if you don't recycle properly and separate properly, we're going to give you a fine. We're going to fine all those wicked people who don't get their separate. Wasn't there a, I can't remember what it was. There was some American sitcom or comedy or with me was a movie set in somewhere in suburban America where the single greatest sin was a failure to properly separate. And all of the neighbors would spy on each other on the days when the when the, the, the local refuse men would come along to collect it to see who hadn't properly separated. Is this, will we have neighbours, <laughs> will this be the new form of it? people ringing up the local, you're ringing up the county council. Here, come here, number 18 O'Connell Street. I definitely saw him putting uh, non-recycling, putting uh, some organic into his recyclables. Oh, I mean, at least, Michael, if you have managed to, like, you've you've bought your, like, grey, just tasteless clothing because that's the only thing that'll ever be sold without this on it, at least then you can look forward to going on vacation. Not outside the country because the airline taxes are going to push that right back to the 80s again. So uh, enjoy Ireland. But you could enjoy the, the staycation tax refund, Michael. If you spend over 650 euro. And you pay tax. And you pay tax. So if you are the sort of person who is, you know, maybe doesn't have as much money and is kind of thrifty where they go, like some of the larger families I know, where they might go, um, you know, they might go camping, they may go something like that, because it's easier when you don't have a lot of money. Uh, you, you get nothing. And by the way, sorry, sorry, staycation, right? Could we just make it clear? And I, I know, I know, I know we're st- every tired of this, but a staycation is when you stay at home in your house. I had somebody sending me photographs on their staycation long weekend in a dare manner. Now, as far as I'm concerned, that's a holiday. If you're going to stay in a five star hotel for four days, eating in the Michelin-starred restaurant. I think it's a Michelin-starred restaurant. That's not a staycation. That costs more than three weeks in Sicily at a decent hotel in Taormina. I, I, that, I, please, anyway, but can I just, I want to quote here before I forget it. Addressing concerns that the measures could hurt poorer people most, he said they would be designed to target only those who over-consuming fast fashion. Now, Gary, I'm sorry, but I don't think that's addressing concerns. That, to me, is what we call making a vague aspiration. My concerns have remained unaddressed. They would target only those. How the fuck are they going to measure that? Unless, uh, are we, you see, this is the thing. We are not, let's, we are not in tinfoil hat here. These are the Greens, after all. Remember what the Greens really want. We are going, we are, we're going, what they're going to do is, we'll all be issued a ration book of coupons. I was thinking that. We'll get vouchers. So, for 
X number of pairs of pants, X number of pairs of shoes, shirts, whatever it is, you know. And probably you can apply, if you do a kind of a job which involves lots of walking, maybe you get an extra pair of shoes. Or if you work outside in the winter, maybe you can get an extra warm coat, something like that. Anyway, but otherwise, now that won't affect, that means that um, obviously you can, you can buy your pants in Brown Thomas's. Or you can buy them in pennies, or you can buy them in Tesco's. But you only get to buy the certain number of pants. That's the important thing. It's only those people over-consuming, maybe having seven or eight pairs of socks, Gary, rather than Well, I mean, this, this was a problem the Soviet Union did face, Michael. It and is. And they, they solved it by limiting the amount of designs that could legally be sold uh, to designs so hideous that people would risk being sent to the gulag in order to import Levi jeans. Well, to be fair, they also event uh, towards... Oh, God, maybe that's it, Michael. Denim. Denim is what's happening. What they did, actually, was even more sophisticated, was they even stopped producing that, so that there wasn't actually any stuff to buy at all. Except, I mean, I, I rem I'm old enough to remember times when people, if they're going to... who would go to the Soviet Union and would... and other... not just as other places, and bring suitcases full of jeans levi's jeans for which they would be able to exchange them for ermine and chinchilla and mink coats and pots of caviar because it was the great consumer desirable was a pair of levi's jeans but i think that's the direction they obviously want to go because otherwise i don't see how you can stop those people who are over consuming i just i i, I stand in awe at this government's inability to formulate a non-offensive policy i mean they had eamon ryan write a policy on garbage collection effectively and come back with clothing is too cheap for the poor and food is too readily available and but, they signed off on it but, and no one went just on a political level lad is this still the week to launch this policy there is a, there's a, in the Irish Times report on it, there's a wonderfully reassuring line, which you, reminds you we are still very much in the land of the Green Programme, where after talking about separating uh, uh, rubbish and how the behaviour change is driven and properly implemented, the, the sentence is, a figure for the potential fine has not yet been set. I, I was wondering, when I was reading through this, you, you're looking at stuff like banning certain food and food is too cheap. And you're sort of going, is there any mention that they've researched, that they've done a study, that they've went, if we do this, it will hurt you know, the lowest economic decibels the following amount. And there's not. There's no mention of it. No. I don't think they have any idea what this would actually do. Furthermore, I would suspect they don't want to know what this would do, because once that research exists, other people can find it, and then start saying things like, well, research said that your move would push the following amount of children into poverty. I mean, I'm not surprised by the Greens, because a lot of the Greens, you have that hard Green faction that legitimately hates people. They think people are a virus. They don't like humanity and they think there's too much of it far far too much there's a there's a wonderful story in one of his collections pgo pg o'rourke the great essayist he was in bangladesh once and one of his dear liberal friends was horrified by the idea of bangladesh because all the teeming numbers of people 
and he describes it wonderfully. He says, there is that deep sense of, oh God, all those people. And there is a hard, hardcore of the Greens. How much the population of the world at the moment? Eight billion or something? That there's probably around seven billion too many of us on it. And uh, the ultimate aim would be to reduce us. In fact, probably remove us. But now, it's not just not just the poor other people i mean everything is going to get more expensive the latte levy which is obviously uh, that's disposable cups so they're going to be similar levies on cold drinks <laughs> such as soft drinks and beer at concerts and sports events so if you're having a uh, you're having a drink or a, or a beer at a concert or a match that'll be more expensive fast food and takeaway containers um will be subject to levies so your your chipper your takeaway from the chinese with that will be more expensive but there's also i mean just the list of things is fantastic they're going things that haven't been subject yet but are going to be will be uh cotton buds plastic cutlery plates stores chopsticks gary chopsticks are going to plastic chopsticks are going to be uh hit by this sure. but then it, but it goes on Tobacco makers will be subject. Makers of balloons, <laughs> wet wipes, and fishing gear will also be more expensive. So uh, clowns, people who wear makeup, and people who fish. I was I was looking at a video the other day, and it was of Vladimir Putin at an environmental conference, I think, or at a conference near to an environmental conference. And he was asked about Greta Thunberg. And it's notable because it is one of the few times I have seen a world leader respond to the environmental question with anything even claiming to be common sense. Because you know what the point he made was, Michael? What was that? It's an incredibly complicated area that is not as simple as one country doing things. Because, and this is the thing, there are billions of per people in the world, incredibly per people by Western standards, who have seen other poor countries industrialise and get to a prosperous standard of living. And he said, there is no force on earth that can make the poorest people in India and the poorest people in China and the poorest people in Africa and the poorest people in South America agree to continue being poor. And that is what you would need to actually have an impact here. And they won't let it. They will not let it happen. It's not something Europe or Russia can do and it won't make any difference yeah you could tr- start by telling the indians and the chinese to stop producing electricity with coal and see see how that gets you on well just it's someone actually making of course it had to be fucking vladimir putin but it's someone going there is a but there is a cost here and europe doesn't just get to decide billions of people have to live in poverty we have decided it they also get a say and he makes the point of what is the trade-off? What What is the harm to the environment that you're willing to accept if X amount of people don't die in starvation and poverty? This is true. Well, uh, by the way, speaking of, speaking of uh, dying, uh, other groups that are going to end up uh, being included in this are producers of textiles, mattresses, paint and medicines. So... Mattresses and medicines. So if you sleep on a mattress, 
I imagine a lot of greens probably sleep on futons. Yeah, Michael, I will, I will say this. I have a lot of friends on kind of the left and the centre in politics. I have friends who are legitimately communist. I have friends who are socialists. Like hardline, not like soft socialist, not like middle class socialist. Like hardline, working class, trade unionist kind of socialist. Come the revolution. There are a few political ideologies that I despise. Like, legitimately hate as opposed to dislike. But I've noticed, like, over the last while, as I've seen Green parties and other government, and the way they talk about people, particularly about poor people, but about people in general, and the policies they push for, and the policies they push against. I mean, the Green movement pushed against nuclear energy for 60 years. Yeah. If the moment we're at is the tipping point, we largely got here because they made sure we didn't implement solutions. And I think at this point, I may legitimately hate a lot of the Green parties. They are anti-human. They are frankly anti-human. You, you mentioned nuclear power, and that's, I, I agree with you, but I, I know that, that that's a hot button for a lot of people. They're people very, very nervous, very frightened of the idea of putting a lot of nuclear power plants around the place. But if we look at the United States and their carbon emissions over the last 20 years, that they've actually managed their carbon emissions and managed to, in a pro rata basis, re- reduce them and to meet their, their own targets because of a massive increase in their use of natural gas, right? Now, I mention this because, uh, I, as you you remember when nobody else will, I had a little bit of a, a, a small little rant on the subject of the green plan for generating electricity in this country. When I, we, I, I showed... I was talking about the example of California because California is now where we are heading for with rolling blackouts and an incapacity to produce enough electricity. They have plans to produce 60% renewables by 2030, even though they're going to close down the nuclear plant in Diablo Canyon, which provides, as it stands, 24% of the carbon-free electricity in California. And they have no plans. They have no feasible plan to produce enough electricity to keep the lights on in California, but they're keeping going with it. Now, as I don't know, is there a, one of the... I'm sure there are worse words, but there are not many worse words and more evil practices than fracking, as we as uh, we know. We also, but for example, if we were in, if we wanted to look at creating generation, because my point is, one of the things that's going to happen on top of all of this, Gary, is we're going to be looking at higher energy costs, higher electricity costs are built into this plan because of the way that they want us to produce electricity. No. We could frack litrum and produce enough natural gas to meet our needs. Fracking is, no, we can't do that. It's rotten, it's evil, it sets children and uh, the local artesian wells on fire. We can't do it. No, it's also worth pointing out because we've also banned future exploration for natural gas in our waters. So we've taken natural gas off the table. We might have natural gas, but no, we're not going to use it. We've taken nuclear off the table. We're not going to use that. What are we going to keep the lights on with? And we, we've, we're going to... Well, French nuclear power is, is the answer to that. But God, Gary, I hope the French are building some stations as we speak. Because the French are going to be supplying electricity for the whole of bloody Europe at this stage, bar the Norwegians. Because the Norwegians produce 99% of theirs from hydroelectricity because they can. You're right. You're right. Nuclear power is a hot-button issue. This kind of something that wasn't a hot-button issue there, Michael, that the environmental movement fucked sideways. Golden rice. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. 20 years 
and golden rice is has been held back. Now, I think you can make a strong argument. So, for those who don't know, golden rice was a type of uh, genetically modified rice, uh, white rice. So it had been modified to uh, provide a high level of vitamin A. And the idea was that that would counter blindness and other diseases in children in the developing world, and that it would be highly nutritious, and it could be used to stop uh, a massive amount of, of, of children, particularly, from dying. Because vitamin A deficiency, you don't run into it in, in the West, really. You'd really have to try to get a vitamin A deficiency in the West. In developing countries, however, vitamin A deficiency is a... Massive, massive problem. The last stats now, I haven't looked at this in a couple of years because I didn't think we would be talking about golden rice for some reason. It was, it kills more people than malaria. I can tell you that, because uh, I, I was actually funny because I was actually reading about this recently to do with nothing, something completely different. If you're talking about vitamin A deficient children, you know, but that's just somewhere between a quarter and half a million of children, uh, deficient, uh, vitamin A deficient children become blind every year. And around half of them, those children will die within 12 months of losing their sight. So Great. between a quarter of a million and half a million children every year being blind, half of those children then going on every year, within a year to, uh, to die. And that is preventable with the use of golden rice. Greenpeace, particularly, has lobbied hard against this thing for years. And I think at this point, it's fairly safe to say, based on the available data to us, that the, f the blocks against the wider adoption of, um, of golden rice have probably killed millions of people, primarily children. Now, it's not just Greenpeace. There are also a couple of issues with treaties that have made some of the research on it uh, exceptionally complicated. Although the Philippines just before kind of COVID became incredibly serious, uh, I think had just, had started planting it. Yeah, Philippines is, an, is, is has taken it up now. Environmental groups have, they, they will not accept technological fixes to problems. So GMO food, even if it could save the sight of millions of children and could stop the deaths of millions more, they don't care. Because fundamentally, they are against people. And the fact in Ireland, it's this wonderfully twee middle class thing to support the Green Party doesn't change the fact that they are proponents of misery. But sure. Ah, listen, I mean, okay, if we want to take, take something else, um, DDT. Now, it's a controversial. Oh, yes, DDT. A, yeah, what, what was the famous book? Oh, um. I can't remember. It was a very, it was a very famous book in the day in the early 70s. And the whole world stopped using ddt now it's disputed but there are people out there who are silent who spring. are absolutely silent spring silent spring well done well done there are people out there who are convinced that stopping you that they that stopping using ddt the effect that the fact which was an extremely dif they believe extremely effective against uh, mal uh, malarial infestation was responsible consequently for a, for a hell of a lot of misery but what whatever side you come down on their argument the fact is that for a large number of people who are in the green movement there is no argument they don't care whether or not the, the ne there are negative outcomes i mean look at norman borlock right remember when all of india was going to die of hunger it, and not just india but mostly and then borlock comes in and in introduces his famous dwarf 
wheat which doesn't fall over so you can that the main you can maintain uh higher yields and higher yields and more resistant forms of wheat now if you produce something like that again but there's gmo involved that won't happen no and i mean ddt was a great i mean we got rid of it based on incredibly overblown environmentalist claims and no one even though you know, there was an argument about the negative impact of it and we get rid of it and it was used particularly in africa to deal with malaria and when they got rid of it malaria spiked not a small spike an apocalyptic spike and uh well no one gave a shit because you know not in europe and who cares i um i i I expect nothing better from the Green Party. But what is the point of Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael if they'll just sign off on this nonsense? And they'll say, well, it was in the programme for government. Yeah. A programme for government, which says we are going to make everything worse for the poorest. It's not a programme for government that should be signed, quite bluntly. And I'm not some sort of bleeding heart. No, I think people know people know that, Gary. I think they're aware, they're aware of that. The, these moves aren't going to impact on me. On a personal level, I, who cares? But politically, to, to regulate and increase the costs, reducing the living standards of the people who have leased, for no conceivable, achievable aim. I is, hate. Yes, yeah. is hateful. Frankly, I, I'm I'm sick and tired of that phrase virtue signaling. I just everything now it's it's like postmodernism or neo Marxism. It's just one of those words. Everybody, oh, it's but this is vile nasty virtue signaling you're going to say to poor people we're going to make food more expensive and we're going to make your clothes more expensive we're going to put you off the road and we're going to make your house cold i mean here's the thing michael <laughs> the only political group in the doll that may actually stand up to this so we'll have aim to they'll probably go against it because that's reasonable we'll have the socialist left groups and we'll have Sinn fein yeah because it's partially because of their ideology, but it's also partially because they draw from working class areas and they will immediately see the issues with this. And it's just... I, 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 let, let's just talk about something else. Extinction Rebellion did something stupid. We're close enough to that. Well, yeah, indeed. Let's stick with the theme, shall we say. Because the, wait, it's Extinction Rebellion, which is, shall we say, the, the what we call the, the paramilitary wing of the Green Movement, has decided that only certain kinds of newspapers deserve to be read. Only certain kind of news deserves to be out there. So they, <coughs> excuse me, they got in and they blockaded the printing presses of newspapers owned by the very, very wicked Rupert Murdoch. They targeted newsprinters, presses in Hertfordshire, Merseyside and in Northern Lanarkshire. Boris Johnson took a hard line on it and said it was unacceptable. A lot of people were saying it was unacceptable. Why didn't the police stop it happening? Well, there you go. I don't know why. But this is, a, I suppose, in a, in a way, this is just the logical con, a, a, a next step from the, ver, the notion of deplatforming, in a sense, isn't it? That uh, y you can't trust these poor people, Gary, out there to be reading the right thing. You know, they get, they get, they read the Sun or something, you know, or the Telegraph, as the same Sun readers and Telegraph readers, I imagine, on a Venn diagram, probably very close. They read these newspapers, they read these lies, Gary, these lies, and they get in 
brainwashed. They get indoctrinated. Did you see what the uh, what the response of the Telegraph was to this? No, I didn't miss that. What they made uh, their online uh, publication free to everyone for either the weekend or the entirety of next week. Oh, very good. So well, more look. people can now read the Telegraph. The quality of which has actually gone up substantially over the last number of years. And I'm not just saying that because it's kind of a right-wing paper. The actual quality of debate in it has increased substantially. A Telegraph's good paper. I, it, I think it occasionally loses its, it loses the light of sanity when it was in the, in, the, in the deep throes of Brexit. It all became a little bit much. But other than that, it's a very good sports section. Good cult, very good in culture. Very good foreign news. Well, it's a it's a news. Listen, Gary, put it this way. You, it's a bit like somebody said. You know, the criticism of Sharon Stone is that she has ugly toes. It's the kind of newspaper we would kill to have in Ireland, to have something of that quality. Uh, so having it free for a week online, well, that's a result. Yeah, and um, this has actually been a, a really good week for PR from them because they. Uh, this thing you, you see it in America and England, it'll be called something like stop funding hate or the like. Yes. And what'll happen is they'll they'll see a business that advertised on a website or in a newspaper, and what they'll do is they'll organise a mass mailing of that uh, of that organization. And because today's corporations are so feeble, and in many cases have become so progressive themselves, they'll just fold to the mob and they'll pull their Advertising. And the aim yes. is basically to, as they say, stop funding hate, where they define hate as any view we don't accept for. And the co-op in England, was a very large uh, company, responded online to someone saying that basically they had advertised in the Telegraph. And they responded to this person saying, sorry, we weren't aware of that. I'll, I'll go talk to our ad team and see if we can do anything about not advertising in that uh, publication in the future. A very standard boilerplate response probably coming from someone absolutely unimportant on the social media team. Andrew Neil, who is the chairman of the Spectator, saw this and retweeted it with the line, don't worry, you've been banned in perpetuity from advertising with our paper. I think this wasn't there an, wasn't there an accusation that the, the, the spectator had been engaged in transphobic behaviour. Absolutely, and then the, the co-op was linking things that were saying the spectator was transphobic, or liking things that were saying they were transphobic. And Andrew Neil basically said this is an attempt to interfere in the editorial process. If any advertiser says I'm going to pull or start advertising because of what we write, we don't want them. And... The fantastic thing is, under his comment, is just something from the co-op Twitter account going, yeah. this escalated very quickly, but that's not what we're saying. <laughs> and then the spectators started talking about it. And then British politicians started coming out and saying, it's great to see the spectator stand up for freedom of speech. And under everyone is the same co-op response. Just, this has escalated very quickly. And I would... Could you imagine... The person in that like no-name call center dealing with the co-op social media who has to look up and go, I've, I've got us banned from one of England's uh, largest papers probably forever. Not that I want to dimin diminish the act. The response of Andrew Neil, because we know from history, it, it he would he it is the kind of he's the kind of man who does this thing from principle, but it's one of the strengths if 
others have said weaknesses of the spectator is that the spectator has moved increasingly to a subscription basis it, it relies less and less and less on advertising and more on online subscriptions i actually that was actually his uh, his response he said that uh, following the co-op's announcement the spectator added uh, 550 new subscriptions within a couple of hours I hope that there are other woke advertisers who are ready to follow the co-op's example. So they are far less uh, sensitive to advertising as, as part of their overall budget than a lot of other newspapers are. But still, I mean, he has, he, he has even back in the day, long before there were online things, Andrew Neil has taken similar attitudes to... Oh, the Harrod thing? Yeah. But um, I think the Harrod thing is a good story. Just, we're talking about subscription things, and people for years have been complaining that newspapers are too corporate that they deal with too many businesses. And I think we're, we're starting to see now, particularly from the New York Times, that there are dangers with the subscription model as well, because you become so beholden to your subscribers and you don't want yeah. to offend them. And I think it's, it's part of the problem with the ACLU as well in America. They got so much money when Trump was brought in and so many more people joined, but the people who joined and the people who, who gave money, yeah, they allowed it to massively expand, but they were not the sort of people who would have been giving the ACLU money when it was you know, it was bringing legal cases to protect the speech rights of Nazis. They would have no interest in that. No, no, that's not what they're... And the, the, one of the criticisms about the Spectator moving to this in this direction is a bit similar to the New York Times, but a different demographic, is that by doing this, they have become... They're less sensitive about speaking to a broader demographic and there's the, the people who subscribe to them tend to be of a certain particular bent and they speak more and more to them to keep them happy and therefore they they lose uh some uh, some quality but listen this is the it's the it's a new age for the press and they have to find a way of, of staying alive but i think you were right if we if we had a paper the quality of the spectator or even the guardian which Many of the things the Guardian publishes is absolute nonsense, just incredible nonsense. But some of their political and investigative work and news work is of an incredibly high standard. Now, I would say that I, I read the Guardian pretty well every day for around 10 years because it was an international edition available, which was published in Frankfurt, so I could get it on the day. And it wasn't my politics, but I would. it was a really, really good newspaper. It's culture stuff, uh, the media stuff, when Roy, Roy Greenslade was there, Simon Hoggard was their common uh, sketch writer and he, uh, political guy, Simon Hoggard was very, very good and very, very funny. You had Polly Toynbee and, you know, just, I wasn't strong enough, so I would just skip over the Holly Toynbee bits. I would say the Guardian, like all the, the, the outlets, it has tended to drift more in the direction of its what would have been the more extreme side I, I, I think it's a less readable paper but they have some very high quality journalists and whatever you say about it, it's, it is well it's well written it was always famous for its uh, typos it's typos they, they call it the granite the the times is still there uh, the independent has gone totally down the drain yeah it depends the, what the it is. British independent it's it's actually quite ridiculous Financial Times, still a great newspaper. The Economist, also gone to absolute shit. Ah, uh, it's just begun with this international walkie thing. Talking of, talking of uh, media things going to shit, there's one very quick thing I want to just touch on. Um, and it's on, it's on the RTE and it's on the Journal. And it's a news report from the Associated Press, um, which is, has 
a very good reputation and not unfairly for the most part. And it's it's this. Uh, well, actually, sorry, it's the uh, Agence France Press. Um, the title in the in the journal is Trump calls on Fox News to fire journalists for backing up claim he called war dead suckers. Yeah. Now this is about a, a story that we won't really touch on now, but if it keeps running, we'll go into it on the next show. But basically, there was an allegation from anonymous sources that Donald Trump. Uh, when he was in France two years ago, because you may have actually heard this story come up then two years ago, he didn't go to a war dead cemetery because he said those people were losers and why would he go? Which, not a great look for a president, particularly a Republican president. Uh, yeah. The story isn't really, really important here. What is important is the first paragraph, which is on both RTE and the journal. And this is the paragraph. U.S. President Donald Trump has demanded the Fox News fire its national security correspondent after she confirmed claims that the Republican leader had disparaged the military, a bombshell that has dogged him for two days. So what happened is this story came out. Then Jennifer Griffin, who is the journalist he was referring to, uh, I think a day or so afterwards, said that she had talked to two former senior Trump admin officials who had confirmed the reporting that uh, President Trump disparaged veterans. Here is my issue with that, and this this may seem very small, but if you consider that most people don't, they're not going to read a lot about stories. They might read the one if they're interested. Confirmed claims. She hasn't confirmed claims. She says she spoke to two anonymous sources. There's no confirmation. There is an allegation. Yeah. Those sources, even if they are trustworthy, are making an allegation that Donald Trump said something. Now, Bolton... Who one of Trump's former people, who is no friend of Trump, the no. relationship ended terribly, he wrote a tell-all book, has said he was in the room when the decision not to go to that cemetery was made, and that it, it was due to rain. It was due to the fact that there was too much rain for the chopper to go there, and it was felt that they couldn't protect him uh, to the standard the American president requires on the drive there. That standard being very different than what most... European presidents and prime ministers would be ready for. But it's it's just it's just it's a small thing. If you don't really follow American news and you read this, you walk away thinking the claims are true because you know this is a second person confirmed claims. But that's well, not you, what's happened. Well also you 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 get two stories neither of which are correct. The first story is that he demanded that uh, she be sacked because she had broken the story. The reason that she's in, in, in trouble, and she's in trouble not just with Donald Trump, but with a lot of media commentators in the United States, even people on, the, shall we say, the centre-left, because they regard this as a non-story. This is, this is simply an allegation. It, it, they're anonymous. There is no confirmation. And it's, it falls pretty solidly at the moment, anyway, into the category of propaganda happening during an election campaign. The story was broken by The Atlantic. And when when the, the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic, who broke the story, went on to, I think it was CNN, could have been MSNBC, but there's video of him, I've seen it. And he was asked why the sources were anonymous. He didn't yeah. say they feared reprisals. He didn't say that they feared for their jobs, their livelihoods, their family. He said it was because they didn't want to deal with a barrage of angry tweets and stuff like that. And the idea that you would allow 
two sources to anonymously say this about the president as you come into an election because they didn't want to deal with angry tweets. Yeah, it's not. Is, that doesn't cut the mustard. It's really. total. I mean, it's, it's, it just wouldn't be done. It would not be done in a different country. I mean, I've used anonymous sources. Everyone who has done journalism has most likely used any sort of investigative work, even really low scale, will have used anonymous sources. But you allow it when there is, you know, a fear of reprisal or there is a particular reason why it is appropriate. You don't just want to go, well, they want to shit talk the president and someone may say something unkind about them. I think even a few years ago, this would not have been a story. It wouldn't have been out in, it wouldn't have been given the opportunity, it wouldn't have been published. It would not have been considered to be ethical to do this, but the rules have changed. It would so, it would appear. Before we go, Gary, there's just one very quick little story uh, about, I suppose, slightly about the, 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 shall we say, the priorities, the apparent priorities that people extract from an incident. Uh, You were aware of the very sad death of a young Brazilian man who was killed on his bike. I am aware of it, but I don't know why I'm aware of it, Michael. He was a, a Deliveroo rider, you know the... Oh, the, I know that. You know, those guys. I just don't know why it's become a news story. Well, I tell you, one, according to one uh, soon-to-be a journalist for the Irish Examiner, the big issue is Deliveroo should be banned. This is the message that she has got out of this story. Actually, on some level, I do admire the ability of some of the people in the Irish Examiner to go from A to, like, 7. You know, not that you have a bunch of, let's say, gurriers in a car who behaved with incredible callousness and lack of care and caused the death of a young man and hopefully will be... They have apparently got very good CCTV of the individuals and hopefully they will be found and dealt with. But no, the, the, the story is delivery should be banned. Why? Because allowing disruptors to create a whole new underclass of precariously employed people, mostly migrants, to be exploited, like ripping up every employment law we have. We have. Yeah, because you know what's much better than having people earn, on low-earning jobs? It's having people with no jobs, Gary. Having poor immigrants, guys from Brazil, because you know, that's what they, they, they dream of, is coming to Ireland and not being able to find a job because every job is going to be is going to be paid at a minimum wage of 16 and let's face it if that's the case and you have a choice you're going to give it to the brazilian guy aren't you i mean that would make sense I, yeah I'm... you're 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 not going to give it to the to the local guy who who knows the city and does and, and speaks english why would you why would you do that let's let's make let's get rid of every competitive advantage that poor people have of getting on the ladder, of maintaining themselves, of giving themselves a life. And let's, let's ban them from working. Because, let's face it, they're, these people are children. And they don't know they're being exploited. To be fair, you say that, but remember the history of the minimum wage in America. Yeah, well, yes. Very they, effective at stopping black people from getting work. It was enormously effective. It really was. Uh, from the statistics that we have... According to Thomas Sowell, of course, who's a mere butterfly of, of who on statistics, you who who trust Thomas Sowell? The year before the minimum wages minimum wage was in federal minimum wage was introduced by FDR, 
the average rate of unemployment amongst black men had consistently been below the average un unemployment rate for white men. FDR, in cahoots with the trades unions, imposes a federal minimum wage. And all federal, all jobs which are receiving federal funding or federal subsidy are, would have to pay a minimum wage. Now, they would have to do something else, Gary. They would also have to employ union labour. Black people couldn't very easily become union members at that time, could they, Michael? No, you see, the trades unions didn't take black men into them. And what was happening was you had black men moving to the north from the south. And during slavery, one of the things that happened, you obviously, on large plantations, people acquired skills. They became carpenters, uh, uh, ironsmiths, uh, painters, decorators. They, they acquired skills. They, they used these skills. And... In a deeply racist society, they competed in the only way they knew how, which was to be cheaper. They were cheaper than white workers, and because they were probably just as good as white work, white white the, for the quality of their their labour, but they were cheaper. People who didn't like black men still gave them a job. So we introduced this white only unions and a federally mandated minimum wage. Bang. Ever not one year since then have we seen uh, black male unemployment not higher than white male unemployment. No, there's a period directly after the Second World War where if you looked at the comparative rates of unemployment between, say, uh, young black men, teenagers, whatever, that, this, the, that actually the rates of unemployment were fairly similar. Why? Because the rate of, the rate of minimum wage hadn't been changed for a very long time. So inflation had essentially eroded away the the gap between what the market would pay and what the minimum wage was. So they were now in a position to compete again. But they did this, the decent and compassionate thing. They raised the federal minimum wage. And lo and behold, it was, again, almost impossible for poor black uh, young men to get a job in competition with white men. Oh, it's... it's the things that people have done in the name of compassion and equity and justice, Gary, have been terrible indeed. I think it's isn't it C.S. Lewis who has that quote. You know, if you're you've, you've, if you have to, if you're going to be forced, if if your choice between what is it, a, a greedy tyrant and somebody who's doing things to you because because they want to do good. Take the tyrant every time, because the thing about the guy who wants to do, he's doing it for your own good, is he'll never, he'll never stop. It's, uh, of all tyrannies, a tyranny sincerely exercised for the good of its victims is the most oppressive. The rubber baron's cruelty may sleep. His, I think it's cupidity, may at some point be satiated. Yeah. But those who torment you for your own good uh, will torment you without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. You know, Brazil, I am told, is a very beautiful country. Certainly the climate is considerably better than here. I suspect the food is, having been to a couple of churrascarias, the, the beef is fantastic. If there are Brazilian, young Brazilian people here, Gary, and they're working here, it's for a reason. And it's not because they can't go back to Brazil. And if they're taking these jobs to put themselves in a position to maybe move up the ladder, and maybe make a better life for themselves. Well, good for them. But the idea that to do justice for them is to take away their possibility of getting on the ladder in the first place, which I think is a very strange form of compassion indeed. 
and particularly that that's the that's the message you take out of this the tragic death of this young man uh, the compassion of the left Gary is a, it, it's a strange strange creature anyway yeah and I do think before we go, it is important to remind people that the hashtag that the uh, Restaurant and Vinters Association is using, if you want to tweet Stephen Donnelly, yeah. the meals you've had so that the government has the record it wants, it's hashtag tell Stephen. Not Stasi Steve. No, no, they went with a little bit of class. Okay, so that's what people should tweet, hashtag tell Stephen. Tell Stephen, because they wanted to know. So let them know. <laughs> yeah, they want to know, all right. Anyway, have a good Sunday, I suppose, if you can. Uh, we will be back in the week. Well, we hope to be. Who knows what the world will bring. But until anyway, have a good, have a good Sunday, and it's combined for me. All the best.